Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Police officers often joke that their divisions, boroughs or patches that they're responsible for policing can often appear like working in a war zone. The constant battles with dangerous and unrelenting criminals, the relentless levels of violence and the long and tiring days trying hard not to get hurt. However, as much as we jest about this, for most of us we have actually never experienced the results of actual war wars on a population and the communities within it. Jason Semple has, and this next episode he talks us through what it means to have served on the front lines in some of the most hostile environments on the planet. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Let's move on to what is an incredible career in policing which has taken you overseas to, 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 to all parts of the world, both in conflict zones, war zones, and times of you know peacetime and resolution and support for countries coming out of conflict. But when did you, after you know this early initial period of policing and response work, kind of looked at this more tactical world of policing as being an area of the of of the, of the vocation that you thought could be an attractive one and suited you? Yeah, well, you know, uh, going back to right at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about, you know, why'd I go in the police? I always had that um, affinity with the military as well. 
Um, so police special operations was a bit of a natural progression for, for me. Um, it sort of covered off on probably scratching that itch, um, but doing it within that um, law enforcement framework. So, um, yeah, I'd run into a couple of guys from New South Wales Police Tactical Operations Unit when I was at the academy. Um, they, they'd obviously seen myself and another guy training in one of the gymnasiums and said, hey, you know, um, you know, got talking and they said, once you've done your time in uniform, come and see us. Um, and I actually kept in contact with a few of those guys all the way through. The tactical operations unit um, were involved in the arrest of the guy who stabbed me. Um, so there was a little bit of connection in that, um, in that way too. But it was like, for me, after Pete passed, it was like, what can I do to absolutely um, really do everything I can to get to, so I'm not wasting the fact that I survived. Um, and, and that police special operations was like ultra attractive to me. Um, so yeah, I applied, um, undertook their selection program, um, was selected, you know, through that, that, um, that activity. And then, yeah, became a member of the, it's a, it's a relentless, it's a relentless program, you know, having been in two state forces myself in, in, in SAPOL and the QPS, and we talk about Star Force down there in South Australia and CERT up there in Queensland. There's often this kind of um, bit of state rivalry as to who <laughs> is probably the, the meanest, strongest, fittest, and most efficient in the country. That's always, I think, um, up for, up for yep. debate. But regardless of that sort of um, competitiveness at a state level and with the Australian Federal Police, of course, um, there is the relentless um, selection process um, which is is brutal because often, you know, ultimately what you're doing is is training the front line of, of of police response at a very high level of tactical response. You're talking about counterterrorism response. You're talking about siege, hostage situations. What was that process like? Talk us through that. Yeah. Um, once again, you know, like the and obviously from a UK perspective, your SO19 is probably the equivalent of you know what the tactical operations unit. Um, the so the selection program was arduous, but to, once again, you know, I, I went into that very well prepared physically um, and mentally uh, at times I actually found myself trying not to laugh when, because you got the, back in that, especially in those days, the directing staff on that selection program were very brutal in the way they, you know, delivered their verbs, uh, you know, um, they weren't, they weren't physically brutal, but they were, man, um, and I just watched, I, I could see the psychology of what they were doing. And don't get me wrong, you know, I was under duress in that program, but I was watching the people around me and you just watch these dudes capitulate mentally. And I actually, and I was like, I, I, I couldn't understand it. So for me, I knew it was this, um, this process and literally a, a game where they're trying to strip you back. They're trying to put you under, um, you know, there's no food, there's no sleep. They're just trying to see how you strip you right back to your bare bones and see who you are and what and and what sort of character you have uh and trainability so um actually the psych psych psychiatrist that was on the program on the last day said to me you know because we had these little sessions and she said um you haven't found this program difficult have you and i go what and i said yeah i found it super difficult and i've 
you know, I'd lost 10 kilos. I was literally beaten up. And she goes, no, no, no. She goes, at any stage on this program, have you, did you feel like you wouldn't get through it? And I said, oh, no, no. I always thought I'd get through it unless I had a, an injury that you couldn't control. She goes, yeah, that's my point. And I, um, I suppose I didn't. I, and, and to be honest with you, most of the guys who were selected and who were long-term unit members probably didn't either. And that's probably what they're looking for. That's the whole idea of, you know, the program. And um, so it, it was physically arduous. Don't get me wrong. I was happy when it was over. And then, But then you get selected and then the real work starts, which is six months of continuous courses where you can get punted any single day if you're not um, meeting the standards that they require. So, um, you know, then there's this long-term duress that guys are under <laughs> but and the mind games are still going on there um uh, but um yeah i just put my head down worked hard and um i suppose i did like sadistically um empower myself of watching other people's weakness come out in them and w- if they got punted um you know um but yeah it w- I, I really enjoyed it i, I it was this ultimate opportunity to see what you're made of which you don't often get in life you know so um you know a lot of guys come and talk to me now and say hey can i get some advice off you i'm going to do a selection course and i said right oh and i and i i asked them a few questions and if if they're you know i've always got a concern straight away if they're not super confident you know um they can be nervous and they can have anxiety no problem but um you know, if they're not going into it thinking, nah, I'm going to nail this, I'm going to smash it out of the park. Um, and then obviously I'd give them some advice. I said, hey, enjoy it. Because it's pass or fail, you're going to have an opportunity to really test yourself like people don't get the opportunity to. So really enjoy it. And they're looking at me like I'm a weirdo. How the hell are you supposed to enjoy it? But I think years down the track, if you talk to guys, everyone will tell you the same thing. They're really glad that they were put through that rigor because it sort of gives them some indication of who they are. So is there a, is there a skill set which these special operational units want to seek out in you, which is this sort of level of confidence and almost sort of very well-maintained or sort of harnessed arrogance that you will always be better than what you come up against in terms of, you know, regardless of the challenges, we'll always get through them because we're good at what we do, we're confident, we're going to exude that because we want to always have the offender on the back foot. Is that sort of the skill set, which is one of the most important key fundamental fundamentals in terms of having a, a group of men and women being able to conquer anything? Uh, yes, I, I, you know, but like in a short answer, I would say yes, but that confidence can only come from the training. So the, the training, as you know, um, like gives you the the confidence that um you know and so yes i suppose the more training you have the more skills you have in your back pocket and the more um cognitive um um access you have to your brain in terms of even just speaking to someone because you, you don't have to you're not stressing about okay this goes really um kinetic and i have to shoot or you know there's a physical uh fighting side of it um you're confident in those skills, which then, so there's no stress in the back of your mind, or oh, I hope I don't have to do that because I'm not real confident in delivering of those skills. Um, yeah, so definitely um, the training gives you the confidence. Um, 
the other thing is from a from a whether it's police special operations or military special forces one of the key things they're looking for is trainability um you know so we're actually looking for that individual like how quick is their uptake on a skill because skill skills acquisition and maintaining skills is incredibly important especially with the breadth of um requirement you know you you look at what so19 does now in the uk to what they were doing um you know 20 30 years ago or you know even just um policing in general really um you know the requirement has increased exponentially um and the visibility on those responses is um also increased exponentially so well um, you know the the threat landscape has changed quite dramatically in terms of this sort of you know, if we look at post 9-11, this global threat of terrorism, which has really come to the fore for everybody, doesn't really, you know, it, yeah. it, it doesn't discriminate against any particular country. Every country in the world has been touched by it to some extent, um, to the point where, you know, our, you know, the UK policing's armed response um, model has even escalated to now CTFOs, counterterrorism firearm officers, specifically designed as even a higher, even higher threshold of skill set they're now sort of, as you described, SO-19 armed response vehicles which drive around the centre of London. But So between 1999 and 2006, you're at the Tactical Operations Unit, State Protection Group, New South Wales Police. What was that period of your career like in those seven years? Must have been you know, some levels of excitement, exhilaration that you're part of one of the most looked upon units across Australia dealing with some of the most dangerous individuals, you know, outlaw, from outlaw motorcycle gangs and organised crime to, you know, those isolated violent incidents like you were the victim to incredible different levels of response required yeah it was very diverse you know you're um like you're saying the which is i really enjoyed that diversity um and no job was ever really the same even if it was you know they're obviously um some similar characteristics um it was it was amazing. I had the we had the counterterrorism response for the Sydney Olympics basically at the very start of my operational um, selection into that unit. So that was a real eye opener. Um, gave us the capacity to um, have training in a lot of areas. It probably would have taken maybe a year or two longer if it wasn't for that that activity being the Olympics um, coming through. A lot of funding. You know, a lot of uh, interoperability stuff with um, Australian Special Forces and, um, yeah. You know, so then, like, the domestic jobs were quite unique, whether it was, um, you know, you, you're at a siege um, and the sieges are sort of, you know, they're, they're literally d- diverse beyond your imagination. Well, you know, you've been around in, um, through multi-jurisdictions yourself, but, um, you know, hostage rescue, extortions, um you know, high-risk vehicle intercepts were very common in the in that period um, because there was a, a lot of the armed robberies that were occurring then don't really happen to the same volume, you know, now because it's a lot, a lot more of a cashless society. Um, but we were we were rolling on um, armed robbery offenders all the time, and I, I think the the preference from a tactical um, response point was to jam them when they were on their way to do arm robberies um, or if, you know, maybe we were intercepting them after they've done one. Um, very dangerous. Um, you know, you're talking like, 
you know, four or five of our vehicles intercepting one or two offender vehicles, um, always having impacts. Um, you know, so um, you know, thankfully we got through that without any real significant injury to any of our operators. Um, can't say the same for some of our offenders over the years, but um, yeah, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> they're very kinetic activity. Those the vehicle, those um, those vehicle intercepts. Um, well, the key is to overwhelm, isn't it? Really, is to kind is, of really yeah. this sort of overwhelming, sort of sort of terrifying. You see it all the time. We see it all the time in London in terms of you've got three vehicles. They box it in. Everyone's out. Guns are drawn. Yep. There's a lot of shouting and screaming. There's no pleasantries. There's no sort of friends being made there. It is proper. We are in control, and you'll do as you. Yeah, yeah, the key in special forces is no different in the military. The key to it's either you 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 have that um ability to you roll on them and, and they when they're unsuspecting and, and you hit them with surprise and overwhelming force we never ever go up against um our adversaries on an even playing field ever you know that's that's the key to success realistically and whether that um overwhelming force is pure they just didn't see it coming and it's um or whether it's just sheer numbers and overwhelming um activity around them and they just you know most of the time that's the driving force where they drop guns and um you know literally physically pee their pants this you know i spent a little bit of time at operation avatar which was the outlaw motorcycle gang task force in south australia um between 2006 and moving into 2008 and and we would often call upon um star force which was our um specialist tactical unit in south australia to assist us with either high risk events if we were if we were going after a, a decent crook who was dangerous and you know and there's no denying that i think outlaw motorcycle gangs present probably one of the biggest challenges to to australian policing right across the country um what were those interactions like in terms of you know because they're they're a force to be reckoned with at times these bikey gangs um, yeah. fortified premises driving around with complete arrogance and a total disregard for sort of that you know, law enforcement or public safety at times, and the way they they drive and carry themselves. Seven News has obtained security video showing a brawl between rival bikey gangs inside a Sydney bar. Strike Force Raptor, a specialist group targeting outlaw bikies, is already on high alert over a spate of tit for tat executions. South Australian bikies have been arrested over a wild brawl interstate. How are those? How are those sort of interactions? Yeah, so. I suppose if you reverse what I just said about us having overwhelming force, that's pretty much how they used to get around and intimidate everyone as well. They had the numbers, you know, so if they, whether it was running an extortion on a business or or, or putting some um, stress on, you know, two uniformed police that have maybe had an interaction with them, um, that they, they exude this, um, and don't get me wrong, there's probably some tough guys amongst them, but... Um, when we rolled on them, I, I've never seen so many so-called hard hard men capitulate 
in such a monumental way as outlaw motorcycle gang members to the point where you know literally they're being zipped up um, a lot of the time when we roll on them they there's an instant there's a very short period of time where they think they're actually going to get killed and they're not 100% sure that we're cops right because we're just heavily armed dudes um, and um, and, and they literally I've had dudes you know sergeant of arms for one of the more notorious motorcycle gangs and he's peed his pants and I'm like standing over him with a balaclava on just going hey dude like seriously I've been in some really tough positions myself I've, but I've never felt the urge to pee my pants can you just talk us through that <laughs> <laughs> you know and and what um, a moment I know and then they, they, you could just see the look of on his face like because he's gonna have to actually you know square that one away with his with his um, with his gang but I, I've, I've found them to be um, tough in numbers and com- com- incredibly weak on the individual scale of course there was there was some psychopaths amongst them as you know but um, yeah they, they were literally if you want to I don't know if it's the right word to use from a law enforcement law enforcement perspective but they were easily my favourite prey when it came to um, people that we were um, arresting um, because they're the, they're the kings of intimidation I was going to say they're uh, the ultimate bullies out there really they the are ultimate just, yeah yeah. but as you know the, the, the bigger the bully you are <laughs> they're probably the, 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 you're not as tough as what you're exuding so um, they, they, could, they could never live up to their hype um, just complete vermin we'll talk about this transition um and the movement of your career, sort of uh, in an sort of in and out of policing. If, if we cover off on on this period between two thousand six and two thousand seven, where you're a training advisor within the U.S. Department of Defense, that is then moving into that kind of Iraq Special Police Commando Brigade. Had you you know you had this? You said you had this this love for the military um, prior to joining the police, but the police is a direction you headed in. Was there a bug to you know? There were some serious. There's been some serious conflicts in the past ten, twenty years in the Middle East. Was there a bug to try and sort of get involved in that period to sort of lay your mark in in where your specialities lied to kind of almost tick that box that you'd kind of had that sort of military exposure in essence? Yeah, 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 a hundred percent. I know I put it down to it's probably one of the most unique periods in um, you know history where you. You know, there's obviously the Iraq conflict kicked off, and then there's this really unique opportunity for people with certain skill sets to go and be employed private in a private contractor um, sense. It was very new to a lot of people. I think they'd been around for a while, but not not at the not in the volumes. And there's a lot of guys from the UK over as well, obviously. Um, and it was a chance to validate your skills in an environment which is completely non-permissive, 100% of the time. Um, so yeah, it was like that, that next sort of, um, you know, um, environment that you could never replicate back in any of our, you know, um, Western countries. So, you know, you go into an active kinetic war zone to do activities using the skills that you've been given. Um, so it was, it was just a really good test. Um, both mentally and, you know, with skills as to how you would adapt and perform in those environments. So 
I'm so glad because um, it did take a fair bit of um, decision making to leave a job that I absolutely loved um, and roll that dice to go to a war zone, um, you know, with a company that I really hadn't worked with before. Um, and then obviously there's a high risk of getting injured or killed, which um, had major implications for a young family back at home. And um, But I'm, I'm really glad I did it. According to U.S. government figures in the first Gulf War 15 years ago, the ratio of private contractors to troops was one in 60. Today, it's more like one in three. Final weapons check before the armored convoy heads out in Basra. Its president acknowledges things have gotten more difficult for private security contractors in Iraq since U.S. troops withdrew from the country at the end of 2011. Was there selfishly some financial implications in terms of the advantages as well, in terms of what you're going to be paid to do this work? Yeah, absolutely. I think the pay was the excuse that I could, I had, you know, with my wife, my wife at the time, to get the permission to do it. I, I would have done it. I would have done it for the same pay or less than what I was getting back in Sydney. But if you're getting, if you can go, hey, you know, sweetheart, I'm going to get paid um, five times what I'm getting paid now. Um, yeah, I'm going to be away for a little bit. Um, but you know, think of where we're going to be financially. I think that that is the carrot that the guys use to get permission from <laughs> from their families to do it. Um, to be completely honest with you, I would have done it for. Um, just the sheer experience but yeah so yeah to a degree yeah I'm, I'm fascinated by then your return back to to australian policing with what is commonly referred to and known as the international deployment group idg yep. sort of the australian federal police's sort of special operations unit um in particular between 2007 and 2013 in sniper reconnaissance team special operations group you know, that, that's a whole nother level in terms of sort of cordon contain and, and dealing with things from distance in terms of managing cordons and and this whole this whole sniper reconnaissance team. Talk us through sort of, obviously you exited from that Iraq training role after a, a, a period of, of 12 months, but then straight back into sort of this policing environment for, for another six years. Was it an easy transition to get back into policing? Um, you never yeah, really left, I suppose, in essence. Nah. No, I hadn't really left, and so um, actually, the and the break was really um, a good thing, you know, because when I came back, I was I was refreshed and go, you know what, this really is a good job, and I, and it's and it's good to be back on Australian soil. Um, so I actually went back to New South Wales Police initially, um, and the Feds were standing up this um, international deployment group, which had a special police special operations component for activities domestically and overseas depending on what the Australian government was requiring at the time and I was like wow this is perfect so I'm going to go if I could, if if I roll into that it's police special operations but we're now like for the Australian government working overseas so you got all the protections and um and the um the safety net that comes with that um so yeah I applied for that they were actually targeting guys from police special operations groups that had gone and done that Iraq stint like I had because they re they recognized the levels of situational awareness and um, they knew those guys would be able to come back and do deployments and be under very little duress compared to guys that had never deployed anywhere um, that were back in Australia domestically. Um, 
So, yeah, I was there, ground zero, stood up that um, sniper team um, with an ex-SAS guy who's who was in the... He'd come over to the feds as well. Um, it was one of the best periods of my law enforcement career um, just because of the... the it was the unlimited budgets we had, amazing equipment, um, and just literally... You, you could you never knew what was coming next it was like you know you'd be doing um and we were working on high like really um big big time organized crime uh, offenders around the country but then you know it was nothing to get a call hey um ramus hoarder's just been there was an attempted assassination of ramus hoarder in timor um grab all your gear um you were flying out in three hours and and then you don't come home and you don't come home for for twelve weeks, so you 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 just you've got a three month deployment, and you're in Indonesia, and you're getting around, um, you know, with heavily armed, doing all your activities. I just found that the level of um, trust in us, and the professionalism of the guys who I was working with, and the inter, inter, integration with the Australian military overseas was just like intoxicating. Really, it was just. You pinch yourself moments where you go, well, like here I am again over it, um, and contributing meaningfully to um, quite, quite serious, um, you know, undertakings. Um, so yeah, I found myself in Timor. We did a lot of work in the Solomon Islands, um, you know, hunting militia. So you know, it's, it's quite unique for law enforcement to be deployed in someone else's country, especially. You know, hugely yeah and 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 you know my sniper team was doing once again it was it was probably um there wasn't many teams around australia where had guys with the capacity to you know um um roll off into the jungle using all sorts of techniques whether it's uh, fast raping or repelling from a helicopter getting dropped off in the middle of the night from a vessel uh, on a crocodile shark infested um beachfront or, or doing covert vehicle drop-offs um, in jungle locations and then, you know, um, basically hunting militia in the jungles overseas. Um, it was, it was um, yeah, completely... We, we, we really did cut our teeth and, our, and build our capability on the fly. Uh, learned a lot of lessons really quickly. Um, you know, it, it was literally, like I said, I think it's intoxicating... It was just amazing what we got to do. Um, ran programs in the Philippines, you know, teaching the special action force over there how to how to roll on, um, you know, um, you know, basically terrorist terrorist camps. How to set up long term observation posts on these camps. Do close re uh, target re reconnaissance without ever getting pinged. Um, you know. Um, and I suppose really meaningful outcomes from those activities we were doing. You know, we've talked in previous episodes to um, close protection officers, most recently with Simon Morgan, who was a close protection officer with the Royal Family here, SF15 yeah. here in the United Kingdom. Was part of that, it was part of your capabilities to provide sort of that external security bubble during VIP visits to Australia? Were you used in that capacity? Yeah, yep. So um, that counter assault teams. Um, and we did that overseas a few times as well, um, you know, and 
the that PSD side of the the cat response. Um, obviously, you've got um, you know highly professional um, you know VIP bodyguard style like Simon Morgan. I really liked his podcast. Actually, he's clearly a um, you know a super experienced dude. Noting who 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 he's worked on, it's amazing. Um, you know, so we we had a close um, relationship with. Um, you know those professionals that were actually walking the shoulder, and then we were obviously providing that cat response, that um, you know, multi-vehicle, overwhelming fire support. Um, depending on, uh, realistically, we we're running the same sort of activity, whether it was domestically in Australia or um, in a less um, permissive environment. Um, but yeah, um, and I, I actually took a lot of the skills we'd done there operationally over with me. To the UAE um, years later in a in another role, um, I, I like that. Cap, you know, we did a lot of heads of state, um, you know, presidential, lots of um, royal family in Australia um, over the years. So yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that side of things. It's you know, 2013, you step away from policing completely, which at that point. Um, was for good really that was sort of the line drawn under that sort of policing chapter going 2012 to 2013 um, operation illuminate in afghanistan was that was that a policing operation was that was that away from the police service and the fp i was still with the still a federal agent um at that point with australian federal police and i was embedded with um task force 66 Uruzgan province. Um, so basically, I was embedded with um, SASR and two commando. Um, a non-kinetic role. Uh, my role in that camp was to assist with um, sensitive site exploitation, and um, you know, I, literally, I my um, I, I did have some guidelines I was supposed to be following from a Australian government <laughs> point of view, but I basically said to them, "Listen, any job you don't want to do, you guys are off doing the war fighting." Any job you don't want to do, I'll do it for you. You know, so if it's some after-hours training for their partner forces, breaching or room combat, whatever it was, um, just flick it to me. And they did. The the boy, the 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 special forces were grateful that they had someone that um, could um, continue skills enhancement, but didn't have to take up all of their time. Um, so that was a that was a really interesting deployment, actually, and. Um, the group that I was deploying with sort of under a fair bit of scrutiny at the moment back here in Australia. But, um, you know, from everything, I, from everything I saw, they were just consummate professionals um, and guys that I'd worked with both before and during and after. They're just really, I, I couldn't rate them any higher. They're just amazing. Um, and by an, a non-kinetic role, is it, you, you meaning sort of non-combative? You weren't there sort of on the front lines pulling yeah. triggers and, and going after bad guys and girls. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I was armed over there and, um, you know, but only f- more from a, um, that was purely from a self-defense perspective. Um, there was a push from our special forces, from um, SA, SASR to get guys from my unit deployed with them. So, you know, we would go out on their operations um, and... Um, we, we wouldn't be the, the tip of the, the spear when they're doing one of their um, operations, but we would be with them and you would participate to whatever requirement was needed. But, and then and assist them 
on the ground with a sensitive site exploitation and you know potentially okay here's drugs here um we're going to use that as a mechanism to put um anyone that's still alive um you know in a in a afghan prison for a long time but the um australian government the ausaid were just sort of um basically someone actually said it in my presence they go jace um we can afford, oh, no, we're not going to afford. If, if, a, if a soldier dies, sort of people kind of expect that to happen at times, but we can't afford to lose a, a, a police officer in this context, you know, so it was all political. So, yeah, in the end, the, yeah, my, my role was um, all based um, within the wire, so to speak. Um, you know, yeah, so fantastic time i had there um with some really you, remarkable people are you, are you based at camp bastion no i was that? at um oh Tarankout. so it was the old dutch and australian base there at Uruzgan. um and there was camp russell which was the sf camp which i was in and then uh, there was the main sort of camp as well and any sort of close calls because there's been a number of stories here you know in this sort of training environment where you're trying to train local afghans and, and even in iraq to some extent but some of them have turned on expat forces, you know, yep. and, and it's become a real issue in terms of loss of life in terms of that training environment. And more insider attacks. Coalition forces, including Americans, killed by Afghan forces. I have to inform you that we encountered two insider threat attacks today. Two U.S. service members died this morning in Fawa province when a member of the Afghan local police turned his weapon against them. That's some breaking news now. Tough story here. Two American soldiers killed. Apparent insider attack in Afghanistan's Kandahar province. Did you have any of those sort of close calls where, you know, things escalated very quickly and sort of need to be brought under control? At that camp, um, there was always, there was constant, um, you know, intelligence and and um suicide bomber threats you know hey we're you know and you could see the camp escalate when they thought they were going to have someone um come in and detonate themselves in the in the dfat or um so that threat was always there i you know and we got rocketed um i would say intermittently i wouldn't say heavily when i was there but you know for some people having a rocket come in was quite you know i would hear it come in and it might be three, four hundred meters away where it impacted, and you'd be laying on the ground, you know, as per your SOPs, and, um, and sort of looking over at one of your mates who's snapped his cigar in half, you know, because it might be at ten o'clock at night or something, and giggling, going, you know, having a bit of a laugh uh, in the stress of the moment. But um, yeah, we're, I'd, we're, I was pretty fortunate that it wasn't too, especially from my Iraq days. I was living um, about four kilometres from Sada City in North Baghdad, and we were just getting, and there was there was car bombs, mortars, all sorts of shit, stuff going on all the time around in that area. Um, so when I went to that um, Tarrant Cat, you know, this is not the guys that were going off doing kinetic work; they were getting into the thick of it. But at our base, um, yeah, the. Yeah, I, I just put down the rocketing to probably intermittent. Some people might think it's a little bit more prolific than what I did, but um, yeah, it wasn't too bad, actually. 
I think I certainly would have seen it more than just a, a bit of an incident. I think I might have been it would have been resonant of that bike you peeing his pants. I think would have been my situation. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's another story. So 2013 to 2017, we're looking at sort of the moving into Dubai and the UAE Military Presidential Guard Institute Special Operations Command, close personal protection, counter assault, counter sniper instructor. What an incredible transition. So still in policing or have you now broken away from law enforcement and sort of the Australian government role into the private work again? Yeah, now it's back to private. Um, I mean, you're embedded. So because you, you're working within that country's military apparatus and they're a coalition, um, you know, um, partner of both Australia and UK and, and, and the US. So um you know, definitely split away from. I'm no longer under the constraints of law enforcement, um, and and now it's just an opportunity to sort of. Um, they they had a lot of. They literally had the the cream of the crop over there. Um, you know, from a um, special forces perspective, uh, and they wanted a few um, of the. You know, they they cherry picked some police special operators. Um, to come in with their skill sets, especially around that counter assault team, counter sniper, and, and the VIP, because we did, we were doing more of that than maybe the military were. Um, so it was a really good opportunity to sort of come in there and once again you're validating your skills. You know, my team was made up of ex CIA guys, um, British SBS and SAS, Australian SAS, two commando. Um, Delta Force, um, Green Berets—you name it—they were there. We're all in—we're all in this um, this collective. Um, of, it was just amazing of the skill sets and experience of guys that were all sort of thrown in together. Literally, epic. Yeah, it's like to be surrounded by all those individuals, including yourself. Just like sort of a pinch yourself moment. And you know, I was—I was intrigued by one of the sort of stories that you sent over in terms of you being a deployment into Somalia, being a key contributor to assisting to significantly disrupt the terrorist group Al-Shabaab's activities around attacking the presidential and government compounds. A graduation ceremony for around 200 Al-Shabaab fighters, the latest recruits for the militants that rule over a third of Somalia. Now Al-Shabaab has been active in the country for more than 15 years. It controls large areas of rural Somalia. This is what's left of the education ministry in Somalia's capital Mogadishu. At least 120 people were killed last month when two car bombs exploded outside. Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda-linked armed group, claimed responsibility for this attack and others that keep happening in the it's country. Just, it's, talk us through that work because that's, that's really kind of operational frontline serious disruption going on. Yeah, the um, and it and it was that sort of that activity we did in for that program is quite unique um, within the program that was been you know that mentoring training program with the UAE. But the UAE is very generous for a lot of their you know their um, partners as well. They um, you know so funny. I when I when I sort of sold that new position that new because he moved the whole family over to Abu Dhabi, right? And I say, you know, it's going to be good. Um, pretty much real short hour days, never deploying anymore, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, my, my wife and family turn up. I'd been there for six months and they turn up and then I literally within the week of them turning up, 
I said, I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back soon. I'll, I can't tell you where I'm going. <laughs> and it was like, what? This is not supposed to be part of the plan. Um, so, yeah, the... I mean, that one was... It was... Like, you know, the you and I spoke about it before. It's like pinch you pinch yourself moments. Um, His Highness wanted to help the president of uh, Somalia and, and obviously their government stabilise. They're getting a lot of attacks on their presidential compound, which is like you know, maybe a cup, one square kilometre of compound um, right there in Mogadishu. Um, and, um, yeah, they were they were getting, there was all sorts of attacks, mortar attacks, um, and then VBIDs, um, and then complex attacks on them. And they were losing, they were, they were getting a nosebleed regularly. Um, so anyway, short, long story short, the next thing you know, I'm there with a couple of key guys, including Emiratis, our offsiders. So there was, I was there from a sniper perspective. I had my Emirati sniper um, major, and then you know there was other guys with like force protection, and then you know overall lead on the project. Um, and 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 then you're in the office of the president, and the president of Somalia is sitting at his desk, and because um, I was obviously quite a large individual he, he sort of picks me out even though i'm not the one in charge and goes so jason you know what are you going to do for my country <laughs> and i'm like um how do i how you end up sitting across from you know some like an african president you know um in some far off land and get asked that question so i was like uh, i'll just de- defer that to my chap that's sitting on my right hand side and um yeah we ran this really successful program um trained a lot of their presidential guard soldiers back in the uae um and we set up um we hardened up their um defenses their the the whole you know put all these systems in place um and made it so difficult for that that al-shabaab terrorist network to be successful in any way um that they stopped attacking them completely and then it shifted their terrorist sort of operations off to um, you know more soft civilian targets like hotels. So if you if you're looking at any of the hotel attacks from probably um, 2014 through onwards, we sort of got a bit of we got a bit of blame there <laughs> because they got shifted to those those areas. Um, I still have um, Somali presidential guard soldiers WhatsApping me even as as late as yesterday. Just they they send me a message asking how I'm going and. They just—they really um, were. It was probably my pinnacle moment in contributing back to individuals who really wanted to learn and then take those skills to into their country for the betterment of their country and you know, um, you know, facing up to tyranny that they were facing up to previously, not in a well-trained capacity. So, um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, we definitely, definitely sent back some very well-trained lads who got stuck into it um, and and really made the difference. They they did the work. Um, but yeah, it's pretty... It's funny too because um, I'll just tell you this funny story. The um, When I did go have that first meeting with the president of Somalia, the yeah. um, my Emiratis, myself and another Westerner, I won't say his name because he'll... He's still um, tasked over there. Um, they were really, really worried 
because they knew once you go into the, the presidential sort of aspect of that building through security that we would never hand over our weapons, you know, because we're just like, no, we're, we're not handing over our weapons at any point. This place is non-permissive all the time and we could, you know, if an if attack occurs, we want our weapons. Anyway, so when we came through for that meeting, they go, um, oh, yes, you will have to leave your weapon here. Yep, no dramas. And I um, so went through the procedure of taking my handgun out and, and, you know, unloading it and putting it with the um, the security guy. And then the Emiratis were like, whoa, I cannot believe these, that he's just done that. Anyway, so I go up have the meeting. Um, and then I'm on the roof having a cigarette with um, my, my Emirati offsider. And he was like, um, Jason, I have to ask, like, under no, under no circumstance we'd ever think you would hand over your gun without arguing or, you know, causing a bit of a scene. And, <laughs> um, and I was going, yeah. And then I, but I'd had my backpack off at this stage. And I said, that's because I came prepared. And I unzipped. <laughs> I got one in here. <laughs> yeah, I unzipped my bag. And I actually had an M4 fully, oh. fully ready to go. Um, but I'd had it oh. sort of um, broken in half. So all you need to do is um, rip it out and one one locking pin and you're good to go um and i go and he just just literally was in hysterical laughing and he goes he goes i knew i knew it i knew you would never hand over he goes so you were sitting across from the president with an with a assault rifle and i said yeah pretty much but obviously i'm trusted and then um and i said what were you thinking anyway like why would you hand yours and he goes and so he handed his over as well but then he pulls his shirt up and he's got another pistol in a in a covert holster in his front of his pants so we had a bit of a laugh and um he goes oh i have to make sure i tell um you know when we get back home and i go no don't do that <laughs> some people might not find it but uh he actually did and they did find it funny but um yeah just those unique moments in time that is incredibly unique you know i, I was going to you kind of asked this answer this question already but you know there's been so many incredible moments throughout your career both locally in australia and overseas is there a you know family moments and the birth of children's and marriages are always incredibly important moments in our lives but professionally what's the most proudest moment where you think you've had the biggest impact was it the somalia sort of impact that you think you you had the the greatest influence on changing a dynamic yeah i mean there's times with some of the iraqis um as well that they they were just grateful but without without doubt it comes back to those um to somalia and literally just you know um a lot of people only get to see certain parts of somalia um you know via media and all sorts of um you know captain phillips and movies and things like that the guys i was working with are just so committed to what they're doing um and you know, I, I lost some of them. You know, some of them were killed um, initially when we, you know, when that sort of first initial training rollout was occurring. Probably lost about ten percent of them actually. Um, you know, in the, and to know, that, you know, when you're running like a range activity and some, you know, you can look around and you're, and you're giving a a, um, a lesson on something. You know, it, it, if it's in a permissive, you can see some people sort of daydreaming, and you and you're like. Not, not these guys. They were taking notes and then they'd come and see me after, you know, uh, that training iteration was was completed and going, oh, can we ask you some more questions? He said, yeah, yeah, boys, come on. Come on. And we're, so we'd, we'd just smoke cigarettes together, have coffee, run through everything. They go, they'd say, oh, we, we had this incident um, just before we came over. 
and we lost a few guys, what would you do here? So, righto, let's break down the whole scenario and not just myself, other committed, you know, guys. Um, and so for me, it was, it was abundantly clear that they were absolutely taking in every single thing you had to offer them because you knew, they knew that was the difference between them surviving. When they left the luxury of being over with me in the, in the UAE, they were going back home. And if, if they didn't take the opportunity to obtain a skill, then they, they didn't have it and it could mean getting killed themselves. So, um, and then it was this profound um, effect they had in their own country as a result of, of that commitment. So, yeah, I, without doubt, that's probably the proudest and most, because uh, I think everyone, you, you, yourself included, mate, you've done things and you go, how, how much of an impact did I have? Um, and um, so, yeah, it's like we all want to, we all, we all try to get a metric on how successful we were in our careers or whether we were just superfluous or, you know, just another number. Um, so it's nice to have a couple of little waypoints that actually capture value, um, even if it is just to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's important to have those moments which kind of really validate all the effort you put into it. You know, I spent a lot of my career working in indigenous communities where I think I had the greatest level of impact on the lives of the people that I came into contact with and got the great deal of satisfaction on making positive changes in people's lives. But, um, yeah, no, it's all very, very worthwhile. So outside of policing since 2017, working as a general manager for an organisation which I know I've spent far too much money with, <laughs> LED. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've bought a number of duty bags, boots, belts, you name it. I'm sure I've I've bought it. Um, so, you know, it's it's fascinating that I think the we, we never know kind of what skills we have in terms of when we leave policing, in terms of, you know, that entrepreneurial flair, that enthusiasm to do well in in private business. And and and, and your career is, is but equally, I suppose, the skill sets that you take away from policing into the private world is understanding kind of where there are gaps, where you could provide that extra layer of support, whether it be in accoutrements or whether it be in the gear that people carry to make them more efficient, more better operators, or if it's the skills you have to train people to be better investigators, there's always something where you can add value outside. And and yours has very much been in that sort of equipment, still operational space in, in giving the troops the best gear that's out there to make them as good as they possibly can be and the most efficient they have. Is that Was that a natural transition? Or, you know, because often we talk about that transition often being a difficult one in trying to find a space that we feel comfortable in and one that we think we can add the most value in. Was it, was it an easy discovery for you? Or was it something you had to work a bit at? No, it was, I was very lucky um, when I was still deployed, you know, doing activities over in, um, especially in the UAE, because it was such a, you know, the environment over there, especially during the hotter months of the year, is just pretty dramatic, you know, 50 degrees Celsius. And so Australian Defence Apparel, um, we'd, we're engaged with myself and a few guys over there. Um, you know, hey, can you, here's, here's, some, here's some new iterations of... Um, of uniform and ballistic armor can you guys give us some feedback you know because you're in this really um unique horrible sort of um like with the heat dirt whatever you're in the desert um you know give us the feedback so we had i had a lot of interaction with australian defense apparel who who's made the pretty much the 
their role is uniform and body armor and, and as such to Australian defense and New Zealand defense. Um, so when I came back, um, you know, they knew I had a huge connection as a, um, um, a network in the military and in law enforcement. Um, so for them, it was like, um, it's a natural thing for you to come up, come into the business. And they knew I had a bit of uh, entrepreneurial flair because I was I had another my own company, you know, and I had a few patents in the U.S. and um, so they said I oh, you know come on through and then so I've basically been a general manager for the LA Gear division for ADA, but also like a SME um, into ADA itself and especially in the body armor and um, any anything to do with um, you know the law enforcement military sort of supply activities so. Um, yeah, it was, I'm very lucky, great, great company. And they're working daily with everyone that I used to work with operationally. So, um, it's really unique to be able to, I suppose, um, have a position where you're still attached to that tribe, but, um, you know, in a completely sort of separate way to what you're used to when you're operational yourself, um, and, but it's, I mean, it's good because I can sit with a lot of the guys I used to work with are now at commander level, you know, whether it's in the, in the military or the police. So you can roll in there and, and the, you've got the transparency, the validation and the respect. So if you're sitting there and they, that's not a, just a case of I'm selling them a box of pencils. You know, they're going, hey, from a, from a capability point of view, you know, they know if I sort of give a bit of advice on gear, that that advice is going to be worth listening to. Um, and so, yeah, that helps. It really validates your position into those um, organizations. And how's, how, how's the success been in terms of the sort of, if we talk about the Reaper weapons support, you know, looking at some of the figures which you give me, which I, which I, I won't comment on, I'll let you do that if you wish to, but it, it mm. seems to be a phenomenal success. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's one of the, so the, that, that Reaper system was a painted um, system, the shield system and the weapon system. Um, and I mean, it was born out of requirement. The The, the shield support system has been really um, well received. Um, and we continue to sort of have quite some significant success around the world with it. Um, and that, that obviously that's the company I had on the side. I've still, I've still got, um, I've, I still am a part owner of that. So, you know, that, that's another, actually, if it, you know, you talk about um, really um, pivotal moments or proud moments. You know, you, you, you yourself, you've, you've had some, like, some significant success outside of law enforcement, you know, and there's no luck involved. It's, you used um, your knowledge and you, and you executed it in a way that was actually really effective and successful commercially. So, um, you know, same with, you know i had a we had an idea and then i did all the design work and and then go through the rigors of getting a patent which is you don't get patent i didn't realize how difficult it was to get a patent um and and then from an idea that was in thin air it, it gets you know goes through all the transition next thing you know you're supplying it to someone and you're making you know you and you've done a really significant business deal and you go wow that is so amazing. You know, it's like thin air. 
and you go through the process and then next thing you know some money it rolls into your bank uh, it's like it's like your own personal achievement um and you know from start to finish so it's really you know i have to put that down as one of the most gratifying things that i've, I've done as well it's a huge and, adrenaline buzz it's a different you know i, I remember doing a that uh, we spoke about it off air a really large commercial surveillance operation in, in in the private world and you know you think yourself you know i i live now for those big jobs where i can make big impacts and you know that sort of financial remuneration is just kind of sort of the the certificate of thinking you know good job here it comes and it's it's I don't know, it's a bizarre feeling, really. It sort of replaced the high adrenaline octane of a car chase arresting a big offender. It's, um, it's, you know, it's fascinating, the transition, really. Yeah, and it's, you know, uh, as you're just saying there, too, it's like, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's, I mean, it's not insurmountable, but it's not that easy to do what you've done um, either. You know, it's like um, a, lot of, a lot of people don't have the, you know, especially coming out of uh, government agencies, we are there's there's this incredible sort of propensity to be, um, um, you know, they're so used to being in that government sort of roles where they've always had that safety net. Leaving it is quite um, difficult, and backing yourself and using your skills and having your own autonomy um, can be quite daunting. I actually found it really empowering. You know, knowing you know that I was out of those agencies and I could do my own stuff and not have to um, answer to anyone any day of the week. Um, of, of course, I work for a big company now, so um, but in a different context. So yeah, no, it's fascinating because you know we spend our lives following policy and procedure rules and you know SOPs, and then suddenly you move into the private sector and there's none of that. And some people, as you say, struggle because they need that guidance. They've always relied upon that sort of structure, yeah. shift patterns, where I've got to be on certain times, where I've got to be here now and everywhere. And and suddenly you become sort of the, the driver of your own destiny. Some people find that easy transition. Some people find it slightly harder. But equally, it's, it's still a, a, a lot of hard work that's that's got to go to achieving a level of success, as, 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 as I think we both agree we have done. And, you know, the last two hours have been... A phenomenal discussion, you know, incredible demonstration of the challenges and the resilience often needed to overcome what are the most confronting situations one could expect to imagine. And I think just goes to show that there is no sort of rule book in terms of how soon those situations can be presented to oneself, you know, from graduating two weeks after to be facing with a life and death situation just goes to show how quickly these issues can be faced by, by new, as you described, probos, you know, as young yep. probationary constables having to deal with some incredibly significant challenges and policing still remains one of the most dangerous vocations, I think, in terms of not knowing what's going to happen. If you look at Queensland police most recently losing two very young officers going to what they would probably have considered a fairly mundane inquiry, um, turning into yep. an absolute um, horrific situation where two officers are executed by some abhorrent individuals just and at the most ghastly situation so um 
I, I suppose on behalf of my team and I here on this little podcast where we try to make the smallest difference in making people aware of the challenges and the sacrifices made by men and women like you, Jason, every day, thank you ever so much for your service and, 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 and equally more importantly, the impact that you've had on people's lives, not only locally in Australia and New South Wales Police, but internationally helping people to make a huge difference to thousands of lives in, in some of the most challenging environments around the world. Thank you ever so much and, and thank you so much for taking part in the podcast and sharing some stories which are no doubt probably are difficult ones to relive and, and, and to talk people through. So thank you. Uh, you know, as I said, it's an honour to be on your podcast. Um, any opportunity to, to share stories. Um, for for me, it's, it's about sharing my story is all about, um, you know, empowering the listeners. So, you know, there's going to be people with way more experience than me out there, but there's going to be those that are sort of embarking on their careers so you know my advice to them is you know always try to take that positive pathway and look after yourself but the the world is your oyster don't don't ever think that you're you're um you know you have to get uh, pigeonholed into some area go and grab it it's like the the world and your career needs to be one huge adventure and um you know and then let it all slip into place you so yeah Thanks for having me in. Thanks for your service too, mate. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking part. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by 